Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. From Atlanta, Georgia, ladies and gentlemen. I know. It's dizzying, isn't it? Um, I was in Par- My wife and I were in Paris two and a half weeks ago, uh, which gives you the sense, if, if you don't have it already, of how many, how many bullets one dodges in one's life. And uh, a person we know um, reportedly was among those injured in Paris. So I, I take the situation there with uh, utmost seriousness. Unfortunately, however, I, I've been unable to uh, book a retired general to appear with me on the broadcast this week. They all appear to not be available. They're, they're appearing elsewhere. But uh, And as a uh, satirical commentator, of course, I don't normally view it as my job to propose solutions to problems. Just I, as Richard Nixon once observed, I'm one of those people who prefers to tear things down rather than build them up. But I do want to be considered a serious person, and so uh, I'll join all the other such people in saying, you know, uh, we should take what we've been doing for the last 14 years and just do more of it. And now, the Apologies of the Week. They're in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville's university's president, Jim Ramsey, has released a letter of apology for the Halloween costumes worn by him and his staff during a lunch. Who wears costumes at lunch? It was held at a mansion. Student protests were held on campus after a photo of the staff at Ramsey wearing (laughs) the Mexican costumes surfaced. In the apology, Ramsey said he had learned a lot after speaking to various groups. He needs everyone's support to move forward. I deeply regret the Halloween costumes worn by my staff and me. We made a mistake of wearing a costume that misrepresents the culture of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans and does not foster the inclusion and diversity efforts that we've worked hard to build. I have prayed for God's forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness as well. doesn't say whether God told him to wear the costume. Dayline, Los Angeles, the dean of students at suburban Claremont McKenna College stepped down this week after protests and allegations that the university turned a blind eye to racial tensions on the campus. Mary Spellman... She's held the position for six years, announced her decision in an email to the student body. It's the right thing to do for the school and the students I care about so deeply. Please know how sorry I am if my decision disappoints you. I believe it's the best way to gain closure of a controversy that has divided the student body. Her resignation came after protests were sparked and a hunger strike was sparked by two students. uh, The hunger strike by two students over an email she sent to a Latina student suggesting that students of color did not fit the, quote, Claremont McKenna College mold, unquote. They got mold at the college? They should call the guy about that. A Swedish bus firm has apologized after one of its drivers was caught on camera when he launched an angry tirade at a group of asylum seekers he was driving across Sweden. The video, where you can hear the driver raging at the refugees in English, was captured by one of the passengers. The bus was driving from south to north, and he was driving the final leg of the journey, an eight-hour stretch. Might as well do a gig after that. He furiously explains in English where children are not allowed to sit on the bus. We're in Sweden, and we have the rules, causing several kids to cry. Damn, that should be so difficult to understand what we're saying, he adds in Swedish. Why do you come here if you don't follow our rules? The driver had told the passengers, they were not welcome in Sweden. It was eight horrible hours. He screamed at us, said one passenger. 
the head of the but of the company says, I can only apologize. It's highly inappropriate. It's no easy task for the driver either, he added. They're exposed to a lot of stress and pressure, but they must not lose their temper. Dayline Asbury Park, New Jersey. A Berkeley Township official has apologized for making anti-Mexican comments on his Facebook page. Hey, I see a trend in this week's apologies. Patrick Pizzi, a Republican on the Berkeley Township Municipal Utilities Authority, said the posts were intended to be jokes for his family and friends on Facebook. They were then copied and distributed by a Democratic political operative to embarrass him. I'm not going to say I didn't put it up. I thought it was somewhat funny, said Pizzi. He since deleted the post and said he apologizes to anyone who was offended. In the first one, he wrote, I just put a sign in my driveway, all Mexicans must show green card to get trick or treat. <laughs> he said he did not actually post such a sign in his driveway. Then in another po uh, post several hours later, he wrote, for Halloween, I dressed as an illegal Mexican and trick or treated in Washington, D.C. No candy, but got food stamps, cell phone, medical coverage, prescription card, housing. Pizza. Uh, Pizzi was previously chairman of the Board of Commissioners of the uh, authority. Pizzi's dishonor. An uh, Alberta, Canada federal court judge who once asked an alleged sexual assault victim why she, quote, couldn't just keep her knees together has apologized and will undergo sensitivity training. Justice Robin Camp was placed under review after a complaint was made by three law professors who said his treatment of the female complainant was appalling and showed disregard for the law, eh? The complaint refers to a trial in which he acquitted a man of sexual assault that was alleged to have taken place on a 19-year-old homeless woman during the trial. Camp asked the alleged victim, whom he mistakenly referred to as the defendant, things such as, quote, why didn't you just sink your bottom down into the basement, basin so he couldn't penetrate you? And, quote, why couldn't you just keep your knees together? He also said, according to the transcript, quote, sex and pain sometimes go together, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I have come to a recognize the things I said and attitudes I displayed during the trial of this matter and my decision caused significant and deep pain to many people. My sincere apology goes out in the first place to the young woman who is the complainant. I also apologize to women everywhere who experience feelings of anger, frustration, and despair at hearing of these events. I'm truly sorry. I will do all in my power to learn from this and never repeat these mistakes, unquote. Judge? Try making new mistakes next time. A senior par Portland, Oregon Parks official has apologized for using Adolf Hitler as an example of a charismatic leader during a training session last month for a select group of city employees. Jeff Milkies put up a slide of Hitler during a presentation to 10 employees, including the president of the local laborers' union. I was thinking he was saying he was history's greatest monster, said the president of the union, something to negate the fact that he just showed Hitler was a charismatic leader to a room full of potential leaders in a public institution. That moment never came. The incident led to a city investigation of Milky's, no discipline, and to the union calling off a bargaining session in anger. Milky's did send an apology letter to those in the class saying he never meant to suggest Hitler's leadership style resulted in anything positive or met with my approval in any fashion. He was hired by the city in 2005, and he's being paid $102,000 a year for such seminars. The Oklahoma Daily ran a photo caption with the story that referred to Missouri students as colored. It was an egregious mistake, says the editor that we deeply regret. The Daily is committed to promoting diversity and inclusion. This error is not reflective of our organization. The co-assistant visual editor wrote his own apology. I would like to sincerely apologize for my use of the phrase colored students. It was incorrect, disrespectful, and rem reminiscent of a horrible time in American history. I regret having written it and never intended to use the phrase at all. Other photo captions use the phrase students of color 
a group I proudly identify with. I apologize for the harm I've inflicted through my use of any derogative language. In an ad in the latest Bloomingdale's catalog, the department store seemingly encourages spiking your friend's drink without them knowing. An attractive man looks at an attractive woman as she laughs. Spike your best friend's eggnog when they're not looking, the ad reads. Sexual assault activists didn't care for the ad, arguing it appeared to advocate for date rape. Bloomingdale's pulled the ad and apologized. In reflection of recent feedback, the copy we used in our current catalog was inappropriate and in poor taste. Bloomingdale sincerely apologizes for this error in judgment. And Apple has apologized to a group of black students asked to leave one of its stores in an incident. The teenagers claim was motivated by their race. Video footage from the shop in Melbourne, Australia, appears to show one of the staff members asking the group of six to leave, explaining that security guards were concerned they might be shoplifters. Apple has apologized. Apple's got a lot to apologize for these days. They wiped my iPhoto library. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the uh, news, of course, has been filled with stories of death. Uh, I want to devote the remainder of this week's show to a celebration of a life. Uh, New Orleans was stunned this week when we learned that the great Alan Toussaint, uh, composer, musician, pianist, had passed away. He visited with me some time ago here on the show, and it sounded a little like this. Welcome. Hello. And also, which doesn't appear in your bio, the avatar of sartorial splendor in New Orleans. You are an incredibly well-dressed man. Uh, you like clothes? Uh, yes, definitely. I have to have something when I come outside. <laughs> I'd best do my best. <laughs> and I believe you would you would be uh, fairly credited with inventing the tuxedo and sandals <laughs> look. <laughs> Not deliberate, but it just happened that way. I'm a sandals person. Ah, for the comfort. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yes. it's a wonderful look. But let's talk about... Um, how you got started in uh, in music, and particularly what what drew you to the piano? Well, the piano was uh, a piano was sent to my house uh, from my aunt for my sister to play, and when they brought it in and set it in our front room, it was love at first sight, because it was instant gratification. When I walked over to it, I immediately got a sound. It wasn't like picking up a trumpet or anything. Now I was a little old guy, around six and a half. And uh, I just fell in love immediately. Mm. And even the next day I began not playing anything, of course, but pressing it and seeing that this is high and this goes low and it gets higher as you go up. And uh, I started mimicking things by ear as soon as I could. My sister began taking music lessons, piano lessons, which she hated. <laughs> I think she started out with a bad teacher. But she learned theory early, like where the E was and where C was on the paper. And she she was the first one who would show me, this that you're playing here is right there on the page. Mm. So that was my first theory lesson. And uh, that's how I tied in the reading part with the playing by ear. And when did you uh, get your first paying gig? Oh, uh, at age of... Uh, Thirteen, uh, we formed a little band called the Flamingos. Snooks Eaglin, guitarist, genius of a guy. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Gregory, Walter Lang, 
on trumpet, Benny McGregor on tenor saxophone, Frank Moten on tenor saxophone, Ferdinand Bijou trombone, James Jackson on uh, drums. We didn't have a bass because Snooks played. Snooks played so much you didn't need a piano either, but there was no way of getting rid of me. <laughs> but uh, we formed a, a small band, and and we played in some places where we shouldn't have been. <laughs> but uh, that's my first paying gigs. Uh-huh. Yes. And did you have formal training? I mean, did you study it in school? or? Well, if you put all my days together, formal training, it wouldn't reach 30 days. Uh, which I'm not glad to say, but that's just a fact of my history because I do believe in formal training. I'm not one of those who think you'll lose something. I think the more you can uh, add formal training to what you already have, it gives you more avenues to say what you have to say Mm -hmm. if you have something to say. It's like trash in, trash out. Mm -hmm. But uh, I went to the Xavier Junior School of Music as uh, as a small boy, and uh, I did not practice my minuet and G's as I should have. I was too busy, which had me hooked. Mm-hmm. It was so exciting. And my mother soon gave up. As as innocent as the tuition was, it still was too much to waste at that time if I wasn't going to adhere to the... Uh, Page six when it's time to go to the next uh, next uh, lesson. Yeah. But I must say that I stayed with the music every day in one way or another. I began listening to recordings and the arrangements, and knowing where things were on the paper, I began writing arrangements that mm-hmm. I heard on on records that I liked a lot. And uh, for some reason, I, I fell in love with arranging and writing really early really early on and uh, being with the Flamingo band that gave me a chance to hear the arrangements that I was interested in doing some of them that they would play and uh, that was a pleasure and and I began writing songs just because I think after you play around if you play every day something of you have to start coming out and say uh, give me a life mm-hmm. <laughs> What, what was the first song you wrote? Do you remember? Oh, no. I don't remember the first song I wrote. I remember the first one recorded that I wrote uh, was uh, by Roland Cook called Long Lost Love. It was one that... Is- How old were you when you wrote that? Had you had a long? Oh, I was uh, eighteen. So you didn't have a long lost love. You were. <laughs> oh no, no, not at all. Yeah, but I was. I wrote all kinds of songs, uh, many really crazy songs. I mean, really. Uh, and I, I even heard a lot of hillbilly music as a boy, so I wrote some of those kinds of things too. <laughs> uh, there, there was a lot going on. It was. Uh, 
marvelous time. You heard that music on the radio? Were you, oh, yes. Yeah. And yes. were you going to clubs? Did you, did you, you got to see Professor Longhair a lot, play live, right? When I was a boy, I didn't see him a lot. I saw him one time at one of the record hops. Mm. Well, sock hops. They called them record hops, but it wasn't like they were records playing. It was a high school uh, get-together, and uh, Professor Longhead was playing a little spinet piano. And because uh, I had accepted Fess as this larger than life, and I saw him playing this little spinet piano, and it was just marvelous to see the real Professor Longhead. I had been listening and mimicking Professor Longhair for a long time. Professor Longhair somewhere about midway there. <laughs> you made it your own. That's what you're supposed to do. Well, reflections of whatever has happened in these years. But uh, Professor Longhair was such a strong influence that I don't leave home without him. <laughs> People have basically, when I talk to them about uh, Professor Longhair, they point out the rumba rhythm coming into rhythm and blues. Uh, would that be, you, you think, his greatest influence in terms of musically? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And that, that old kind of voice. Uh, a few people come, come along every now and then with the voice like that, that kind of, it sounds like a defective voice, but it's so charming. You, you, want, you can't get enough of it. Louis Armstrong had that mm -hmm. kind of thing that... Uh, sound like uh, he swallowed a stick or something. Mm -hmm. Well, Professor Longhair had that kind of old gravelly voice. Also, he would sing whereas his, he would jump an octave with some things, uh, which was very interesting. And it passed by so quickly, you don't know, uh, many don't notice uh, that that's a thing of Professor Longhair as well as the way his voice sounds. Like, look at that. She got no hair. And mm -hmm. drop that octave mm -hmm. on his voice, you know? Mm -hmm. When I first heard that as a boy, I just wondered what would make a man do that? <laughs> you know, and and what, did you ever come up with the answer to that question? No, not at all. <laughs> you have to be fess. Uh-huh. 
but uh, I was 16 when I first saw him. And that was very, very exciting. I didn't dare say a word to him, but I went over near where, uh, near the piano and stood there. But uh, I, I hadn't gotten to the point where I knew that I could actually speak to Professor Longhair. And and I saw him play. And then I didn't see him again until uh, I went to One Stop Record Shop. I used to go get records when when I did start buying records on my own. Uh, and when they had to sit in the back to get a certain recording that was in stock, who was a file room guy but Professor Longhead come out with the records. Really? And that was the one. And I wanted to do, do you all know who that is? <laughs> you know? And of course, they probably did, but it didn't mean the same to them as it meant to me. But for him to bring that out just was monumental. That was a marvelous moment. I remember that forever. Mm. Well, it's it's a bittersweet uh, memory because the idea that a guy who had that much influence over this this whole yeah. town's music should be doing that instead of playing and, yeah. and playing good pianos. Well, we always did take our music for granted around here. I think. Yeah. yeah. What's the uh, first hit record you had? Well, the first one that I produced was probably uh, Opu Padu, Jesse Hill. Hill. Uh, and then, well, and the first one that I wrote, well, let's say the first one that made a hit like to number one was Mother in Law. Ah. Mother in Law. Could you, could you play a little bit of that? Oh, sure. <laughs> Late. we used to do four songs on each session in three hours and <laughs> and we did uh, we did uh, Hello My Love, Tainted the Truth, Mother-in-Law and won a $10,000 reward well we thought Hello My Lover was the song and it was an okay song uh, very easily forgotten <laughs> and Mother-in-Law came out as the next record that would come out behind it whatever the other one would have done and that proved to be uh, a signature song for Ernie Cato and myself, mm -hmm. in a way. But now, I wrote Java for Al... Uh, well, I wrote Java actually for myself. It was later recorded by Floyd Kramer, then Al Hurt. That was written uh, before Mother-in-Law, and uh, it came out again by Al Hurt, and that, that's when it really went to the moon. So the first uh, hit song that I wrote, I think, may have been... Uh, Java, and and just reading up on you in preparation for this conversation, I, I discovered something I hadn't known, which is why you read, uh, which is that uh, you wrote whipped cream. Oh yes, yes.
Herb Alpert took the honky-tonk out of it. Oh, he was fine. He did a great version, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and if you listen to the Stokes, the way the Stokes did it, and listen to Herb Alpert, they, he stuck pretty close to the, to the arrangement. And, uh, of course, his hip flair to the trumpet added something very tasty to me, as far as I'm concerned. And that, that became the theme of the dating game, the right? The first dating the game, The first yes. dating game. So that and was... after they uh, understood the formula, then they, re they wrote others like that <laughs> to take its place, which was fine, because time moves on. And let me say that we can't mention uh, the New Orleans scene of music without mentioning Dave Bartholomew as a trailblazer. Mm. Dave Bartholomew set an interesting pace here. And I uh, I think of him every, whenever I'm thinking of the record industry and how he worked his thing, and he didn't fix what wasn't broken. Uh, but uh, there was a clan of uh, session musicians who played on everything generally. Uh, Red Tyler, Lee Allen, Earl Palmer on drums, Frank Fields on bass, usually Justin Adams on guitar, uh, later on being Roy Montrell people like that. People would come in uh, and bring artists in, and the artists would just come over to the pianist and sing a little bit of their song, how it goes, and then the piano player would learn it and then start playing the changes, and other guys would come in, or either you dictate to them how it should go. And that's the way sessions were done. Not much, not much pre-planning at all, mm. and never pre-rehearsal. Never. Wow. And it was a full song, per session, three-hour session. The scale was $41 in the quarter. <laughs> and the leader got double when, uh, when the union was, well, when the union forced them to pay. <laughs> and, uh, but it was a wonderful education. One of the figures here that uh, I came to New Orleans way too late to have any personal knowledge of except his records, but you worked with him. Uh, tell me a little bit about working with Lee Dorsey. Great. As I say, his voice has a smile to it. If you listen to Lee Dorsey, for some reason you can see a smile. Uh, and something in you can feel that smile. Everything I do gonna be 
It was a pleasure working with him. For one thing, he was high-spirited, very high-spirited. Loved life all the time, all day long. And he was a, a body and fender man. That was his normal skill and trade. And so You don't he, mean in the blues sense. You mean for real. Oh, for real. No, he bent fenders all yeah, day. Yeah. And I don't mean having wrecks. He was straightening them out. Mm. And uh, he was extremely good at it. The first time I worked with Lee Dawson, he came to the studio with his greasy uh, mechanic clothes on. Everything about him was still like that, and his his little flask of uh, Chevy's Regal uh, had some of his uh, grease on it. Mm. But uh, he was very high spirited and loved singing so much. He and he he not only loved himself, he loved listening to others. And he just really got off on it. And it was a pleasure to be around him with such high spirit. He always had something very uh, kind of humorous to say. And he was a very good entertainer on stage as well and a good dresser when it was time to do that. Also, Lee, Lee Dawson and I hung out a lot. We hung out during the club days. We rode motorcycles together. We raced Cadillacs together. Really? Yes, when I bought a Cadillac uh, one time, and and uh, he liked it very much, so he went to his body shop and built him one. looked better than mine. <laughs> looked better than mine. And uh, we had quite a life together. Among the songs you wrote for him were... Working in the Coal Mine, of course. <laughs> Lover of Love. Get Out My Life, Woman. Uh, yes, We Can, Can. Lover of love, now that's a what you are. No one in particular, that's your line. Uh -huh. Joe, Jack, Jim, Mac, just anyone will suit you just fine. About to slip down, working in the coal mine, going down, down, working in the coal mine. It's five o'clock in the morning, I'm already up and gone. Lord, I'm so tired. How long can this go on now? Working in the coal mine, going down, 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 and. Together with one another, none of their problems and none of their quarrels, and try to live as brothers and try to find a peace within without stepping on one another. And do respect of the women of the world, just remember we all had mothers and make this land a better land and the world in which we live. And help each man be a better man with the kindness that you give. And I know we can make it I know darn well we can work it out Yes we can, I know we can, can Yes we can, can, why can we well, If we want to, yes we can, can I know we can make it work I know we can make it if we try Yes we can, I know we can, can Yes we can break our shots 
somebody, yes, we can, I know we can, can. And I wrote several ballads for him. He was a good ballad singer as well. He had so much heart in everything he, he sang because uh, he loved it so much, and I think he felt blessed to be singing. You could tell that uh, he was very glad to be at the moment all the time, and all of who he was was at, at the mic. He didn't leave fragments somewhere else. It's just marvelous and so easy to work with. Then you moved, you started working in Los Angeles and started bringing uh, uh, New Orleans people out there. You did, uh, you worked on with the Meters in Los Angeles, or was that the, was that cut? Were those records cut in Los Angeles, or were they cut out here? The Meters records were cut in New Orleans. Uh, in New Orleans, yes. The, oh. the the Warner Brothers, the reprise ones. Oh yes, they were recorded ah, in New Orleans. Ah. Yes. But I did do a couple of recordings in California. In fact, I recorded uh, a couple of things of my own in California. Uh, the, the album that I did, Happiness and things like that on, was recorded in California with Charlie Green, mm. which uh, I really enjoyed a lot. And then uh, Jerry Wexler produced an album on me, the Motion album, that was uh, recorded in, in California. And uh, it was great out there. I mean, things worked smoothly and and very professional. But it's an entirely different trip being here. Mm. Uh, but everyone was very gracious in California. And I've, I've recorded in New York some, too. But the bulk of my recording has always been in New Orleans. And the meters, all that stuff was here. Mm. Mm. Except a couple of times we went to Atlanta to do things like in fact, Yes We Can Can was recorded in Atlanta. Something had gone wrong with the studio here. And we went to Atlanta to uh, the LaFever studio and had a great time. Just wonderful. So we went to Atlanta to do a few other sessions. But whenever we left here, it was because something wasn't happening with the studio here. Mm. Uh, I, we didn't go somewhere else because somewhere else was so great. We went somewhere else because we had to. Those amazing meters records um, in the mid-70s where they sort of exploded out of New Orleans and, you know, onto everybody's consciousness. I remember getting uh, rejuvenation and not knowing a thing about New Orleans music, uh, but that record just stayed on my turntable and drove my neighbors crazy because <laughs> I played it so loud. And I, I, didn't, I didn't know the history of it. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know what it meant. I just know how it felt. That must have been a shock. <laughs> it was a good shock. It was a great shock. Get the 
The Meters was the most perfect group that I've ever witnessed anywhere uh, for as uh, compatibility with each other and uh, how they uh, inspired each other mm. and the sparks that flew in all directions. You can hear the music, how those sparks are flying everywhere. And again, I must say, as I would say at other times, Art Neville, the nucleus mm. of it. There's something about that man. The man is magic. And I say that because uh, Art can put a group together next week and something exciting will happen in the world, if he would. But uh, the meters, every, every one of the guys in their own right was just amazing As you, if, if you listen to that because you can hear everyone very clearly. Mm -hmm. And the way the sparks are flying... And that syncopation, that kind of syncopation, which seems like it's it's going in all directions, but if you if you notice, there's a unity there, that it really takes them to do it at its best. It takes those guys exactly. And uh, all you had to to produce the like, I've produced many people, and many people I've have, I wrote and arranged, taught them the songs, do this, that, and the other. With the meters, you just open the door and let them in and close the door and, and don't get in that way. Mm. Because for one thing, they they prepared themselves all the time because they loved what they were doing and they slept and ate it. My evaluation about the meters is always from my own uh, anatomy and ear and spine bone, <laughs> the most perfect group. And then you started uh, really making a name for yourself as a, as a recording artist in your own right, um, stepping out from behind the, the glass. Well, my first recording on my own was way back there during those early days of Long Lost Love. Mm -hmm. On uh, uh, It was released to RCA Victor. There was a talent scout named Danny Kessler who would move about the country and record people here and there. And when I was playing on the session with Roland Cook and Roy Gaines, he kept saying in the control room, turn the piano up, turn the piano up, because he liked what was happening. And he came out and asked me what I considered doing a record. And uh, I pondered for a long time, for about two seconds, and said yes. <laughs> and uh, Beats the alternative. <laughs> right. And I did prepare things. That's where Java came from. That was one of the tunes on that recording. Uh, but uh, later on, Steve Terrell, who was with uh, Septon Warren, we, uh, I was with Marshall Sehorn at this time, and we were there to talk about some of our artists being uh, on their label, uh, uh, our label being a subsidiary or uh, any business transaction that, we, that Marshall deemed necessary. And... Uh, Steve Terrell knew my my vocal and knew my arranging and all, and he thought, why don't you record yourself? And I had no interest at all in that. But uh, I thought if he believed that, why not try it? 
so that's when I first recorded myself with Septon Warren. And we did that in California with Charlie Green. And at that time, I did vocals because that early recording with Java was all instrumental. I never really wanted to sing at all. Just really? enough to teach the artist a song. I still feel that way. Well, I love to hear you sing, so. <laughs> well, thank you. But uh, that's what that was the first uh, vocal album. Then I did others as a special request from Warner Brothers. And as Marshall, my partner, moved about, he was always about business. And if there was a market for my vocal as well as writing for others, why not? Uh, pursue it some so we did and I did at his request and things like that but I never felt uh, adequate so uh, I always thought my singing was a demo for someone else to hear the song and uh, wow. I'm glad some folk listened and, and covered them let's go back a minute to the to those records in the 70s because I think that was some amazing work that you did uh, the songwriting and the and the just the whole sound of those records was different from anything that anybody else was doing, and yet uh, you had hits with them. You had hits with those songs, and did you did you tour behind those records? Well, Southern I Nights did. And, and... I I did a one tour with Warner Brothers, which was first class. They rolled out the carpet everywhere. Uh, it was a brief tour, and it was on a on the road with. Low George, who was the prince of a man. He sure was, yeah. A prince of a man. So dear and sincere about the music. So you, you think the world looks crazy And eats up your lies Like it's good for her Like apple pies And she don't even cry
he loved New Orleans music as well. In fact, he was responsible for. Uh, he he took one of the songs I wrote for Lee Dorsey called "Sneaking Sally Through the Alley," and he recorded it on Robert Palmer in New Orleans in our studio. And he funkified it up. He and the meters, something terrible. It was marvelous the way he did that. Uh, he was such a cool, laid-back, sincere, dear man. And also he had a great heart. Uh, uh, he gave me some comforting words at a time when they were needed very badly. Uh, so I, I saw his heart in a, in a different way that also that wasn't shown every day. But, uh, yeah, I made that tour with Warner Brothers. Well, let me say that I've done two major kind of tours in my life. Before I turned 20, I toured with Sherlyn Lee. I took Hughes Smith's place. He was out ill. My first airline trip was I flew to Charlotte, uh, Asheville, North Carolina, to meet with Sherlyn Lee, and I was their pianist. Uh, which was most exciting for me. And uh, I was just leaving the Flamingo Band at that time, so I still was enthusiastic about arranging, so I would arrange a lot of music that they didn't play a lot mm. because they had the, uh, the show that we had to do. But I got a chance to hear some of my arrangements played back there, which helped a lot. But I did the tour in, uh, with Sherlyn Lee early on, and... That was lasted almost a year, in in fact, and uh, then I did many years later, of course, seventy five, the Warner Brothers tour, the Southern Nights tour, mm -hmm. with Lowell George, Little Feet, and uh, let me tell you, Little Feet was hot and funky. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful, and they had such a good following. Uh, fortunately, people tolerated us until <laughs> Little Feet got out there. But uh, it was indeed a pleasure and quite an experience. You were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Talk a little bit about what that was like. That was most exciting and most unexpected for me. Being here in New Orleans, and I, I've never lived anywhere else, so I, I only feel the pulse of New Orleans daily. And I, I didn't know that anyone had given me that kind of attention that would get me into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that was, I guess, a highlight of my career. And being there, I remember the feeling, because everything was first class. It was at the Waldorf. And uh, it was all that... Uh, the Oscars would be to mm. the movie industry. And they had the bio and the whole razzmatazz that goes along with it. And all all the who's who was there. And I, just, I was totally elated. And uh, even uh, after knowing that I'm going to be there and going there, every moment of it was still a surprise. And uh, some very dear people who I had known for many years was around. That was very comforting. Robbie Robinson was there because he was a part of things. He's a part of everything that's happening. Yeah. But uh, 
it was uh, monumental to me. And you played? Oh, I sat in with the band and yeah. played whatever was happening. I played, I think, on Lord and Miss Claude, with Lloyd Price. I think uh. I played a bit on that. Oh, with someone. Mm. <laughs> yes. The most amazing thing about uh, in a career that's really, truly amazing is that so many different kinds of people can cover your music, can cover your, your songs and, and get something valid out of them. Herb Alpert, Glenn Campbell, uh, people so far removed from the New Orleans musical scene can pull something out of you and, and make it valid for them. Is that something you, tr you try to be universal in that way or is that just a, a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful way things come out? It just happens that way. Uh, I, I don't try that at all. In fact, uh, many times when another company requests that I record their artists, I I try and tame that in some direction and, and find a target because uh, I can't help but notice myself. I'm all over the place when it comes to appreciation. But with Lee Dorsey, I could do anything. It just didn't matter. I can do something half soft shoe. Then I could go funky as James Brown, uh, uh, all kinds of ways. Uh, some places that no one has been before. But uh, as far as the diversification, that's just a part of my uh, reflections in life. Do you think that there's that New Orleans is a city that hasn't really musically given way to the machines? Uh, its music is still live here and, and it's still being played by players and, yes. and people are still coming up learning to play as opposed to uh, machines. Do uh, you think it's going to come back around? I, I know it's hard to predict. You mean the whole country? Yeah. I mean, do you think the ear is going to get tired of machines and want to go back to the humanity of live playing? Well, it's hard for me to say because things uh, have a way of... Uh, I thought the Nehru suit was going to be around longer than it lasted. <laughs> You know, Benny Hinn is the only one still waiting on. <laughs> uh, it's hard to say, but uh, I, I, I do think the hip-hop market and rap scene will be around for quite a while because they promote a mentality and, and, and keeps it in a certain place, like in a way producing their own audience. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not good or bad, it's just what it is. Uh, as far as the, there's still uh, people who are studying at Juilliard. There's still uh, people, and and let me say about New Orleans, there's a thing that, as innocent as it appears, is good for us. The second line brass band, that thing is still very very good for us. That loose feeling of this is just how it is in the street. It's not as technical as Brubeck, but check this out. That is still very hip and even respected. And I, and, and there's some of those musicians develop it to a great level, like uh, Trombone Shorty. Trombone Shorty is impeccable. Yeah, and the ideas of Kermit Ruffin, just, and, and I, I mentioned those because they do that street thing. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, there's still guys coming out like Peyton. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to say that New Orleans is uh, still staying live, like you say. 
Uh, yeah, I think there will always be uh, live musicians because there's something about playing and getting together. It's just that we have a parallel situation going on and well, we'll accept that. Because again, it's trash in and trash out because among some of that stuff, it's some very interesting things. Uh, the electronic music. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I, I, I think it's a little, uh, some things get a little redundant. And now you've, you, I don't know if you've heard about, heard any of this music, but uh, there's a, there's, you know, everything goes around in cycles and there's a movement in England, especially, I think, uh, Neo Soul, where they're trying to sure. recapture the, the, the looser feel of 70s soul. And well, yeah, that's, and I, I like that too. There's enough room for it all. Mm. Uh, yes, I, I understand that. Uh, if if I, I appreciate the effort, if it's that's what you want to hear, as uh, as opposed to uh, let's uh, do this, like if some businessmen got together and said to do it. Of course, I must say that if it wasn't for good businessmen, we'd still all be playing in the backyard, you know. <laughs> so uh, I'm sort of afraid to to knock anything that uh, that is uh, brewing. Mm. You know, because it it takes uh, all those worlds coming together to to reach people. For me to sit here and play the piano and someone uh, listen to it in England next week, that's pretty interesting. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm so grateful that you spent some time with us today. Um, would you uh, favor us with one other little piece to take us out? This is with you in mind. That's the name of the song, mm. not you personally. Oh, okay. I was getting worried. Alan Toussaint passed away in Madrid this week at the age of 77. That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world. By the internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin. On Soho Radio in London. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com. And available as a free podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, and at WWNO.org. And it'll be just like doing what we've been doing, but more of it. If you'd agree to join me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh -huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Chicago in, ex uh, in exile. Pittsburgh and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans and to Richard Firth here at WABE in Atlanta as well as Drew at Piety Record, the late lamented Piety Recording Studios in New Orleans where today's conversation with Alan Toussaint was recorded. The email address of this program play the list of the music heard here on your chance to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts Christmas is coming, all at harryshare.com. And I'm at Twitter, 
at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station for the Change is Easy radio network. So long from Atlanta. <laughs>